This week on WealthTrack, the end of globalization. Financial thought leader Richard Bernstein predicts it and says it will transform markets in the new decade. Next on Consuelo Mac WealthTrack. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Funding provided by Morgan Le Fay Dreams Foundation, Clearbridge Investments, a Leg Mason company, Miller Value Funds, Royce and Associates, Matthews Asia, First Eagle Investment Management, Strategus Asset Management, and Eaton Vance. Hello and welcome to this edition of Wealth Track. I'm Consuelo Mack. Are we witnessing the end of globalization, the dominant trade and economic force of the last quarter century? That is what financial thought leader Richard Bernstein is suggesting to clients. In a recent report aptly titled Investing for December 31st, 2029, the end of globalization, he makes his case. And yes, he is talking about 2029. Bernstein is outlining a strategy for the next decade, which is right up WealthTrack's alley. We, too, try to think long-term, considering our investing careers last for decades. Market cycles can last for years. The current bull market in large-cap U.S. stocks, at least, is in its 11th year and has set a record for longevity. And investment trends can also last for multi-year periods. As Bernstein notes in his report, market leadership always changes decade by decade. And the leadership of the past decade, which are now lauded as core investments, seem highly unlikely to be the leadership of the next decade. Well, if he is correct, which he has been frequently over the years, thinking about investing for 2029 is probably a healthy exercise. Richard Bernstein is chief executive and chief investment officer of Richard Bernstein Advisors, which he founded in 2009 and which now oversees or advises over $9 billion in assets, largely in multi-asset allocation strategies for financial advisors using ETFs. RBA is ranked one of the 10 largest ETF-managed portfolio strategists by Morningstar. In his previous life as Merrill Lynch's longtime chief investment strategist, he was inducted into Institutional Investors Hall of Fame for his 18-year tenure on its prestigious All-America research team. I began the interview by asking Bernstein why he believes globalization is ending. I think there's any number of reasons. but, you know, globalization through history has been like an accordion. It's, it's expanded, it's contracted, it's expanded, contracted. And I think um, people have this notion that we're in an unprecedented period of globalization. Yes, that, they do. That, that, yeah, it's really not true. You've seen this through history. But what's starting to happen now is globalization, the negative effects of globalization are happening all around the world. It's not just here in the United States. Right. What you're finding is the political entities are trying very hard to push back, and they're trying to get it to shrink. And I just think the next 10 years are going to look very, very different than the prior 20 or 25. But does that mean necessarily mean that we're going to see global contraction? That's a, that's a, that's a great question. You don't, no, I don't think anybody knows the answer. Yeah. But, but what, what open globalization allowed was for production to shift 
to the most productive place it could. So right. maybe that was, and that was true within the United States. You know, I mean, if you go back far enough, the, the textile mills were in upstate New York, then they went to the Carolinas. Mm-hmm. I mean, it goes to where production is most efficient. And so what that did was it allowed production to shift around the world to where it was most efficient. And that's one of the reasons why we had kind of these deflationary, disinflationary pressures, mm-hmm. where you were always getting greater and greater efficiencies. As you uh, begin to constrain that and you don't let this kind of free flow of goods and services and production around the world, what begins to happen is production shifts to less productive areas or you start putting other costs on top of it that raise the cost. And, and so what happens is you, you get less, less efficient production. Mm-hmm. That means higher prices. Right. It's a game changer. I, I think so. Right. I think it is. And I think the timing of writing the report is important because we are coming to an end of a decade and granted, it's just a calendar, and that's fine. But what you find historically is leadership in one decade is not the leadership of the next decade. And, and you can go back and see this decade by decade that it changes. And so all we at, at my firm, what we tried to do is we tried to sit down and say, okay, we're coming to the end of the decade. What's going to be the leadership in the next 10 years? Right. You know the odds are very low it's going to be the same leadership as the last decade, which everybody now thinks is like the greatest thing since sliced bread. It's got to be the core of your portfolio. You have to own it. These are the dominant companies. These are the fangs, for instance, exactly. that you're talking about. Big exactly tech, right. U.S. blue chip, right. Exactly. Growth. So is the next 10 years going to look the same? And mm-hmm. so if you look at the political backdrop, not just here in the United States, I think it's, right. I think it's cute to point to the president and say, oh, look, it's happening it's all everywhere. around the world. And if you look at that backdrop, you look at what's happening in production around the world, you can start to envision a different type of stock market leadership. So let's talk about kind of that you've identified four major changes that you think are going to happen in this in the new decade. Mm -hmm. And one of them is that inflation returns. Yes. Where are you seeing any evidence of that now? And what kind of inflation are we talking there about? There are there there is evidence is coming back. Nobody nobody kind of is aware of this because still absolute inflation rates are so low. Uh, the, what I've tried to point out to people is don't think of this as if there's got to be five percent or six percent mm-hmm. inflation. You know, if you're if you're our age, you're thinking 1970s. No, and, right, exactly. And what's going to happen? Right. Yeah, and and that's not the right way to think about it. The right way to think about it is an investor is to say, what's the probability that inflation will be higher? than people think over the next five to 10 years. Why is that important? Mm -hmm. Well, if you look in the University of Michigan Consumer Sentiment Index, there is a subcategory that says, what is your inflation expectations for the next five to 10 years? And in the December version, it was the lowest it has ever been in the history of the survey. Wow. Which goes back to like the 1970s or something. So my point being the hurdle is very low. Right. What's the probability that inflation could be higher than people think? That probability has probably never been higher simply because their expectations are so incredibly low. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think from that point of view, the bet over the next five to 10 years is the same. Yeah, maybe inflation could be higher than people think. It may not be high in an absolute sense, but as an investor, that's not what's important. Right. So what what are you doing in, in your right. you know, ETF portfolio so as there's, far there's as asset things, allocation? There's a couple of things we've done. Number one, uh, sort of obvious, is we have uh, about 15% of our multi-asset portfolios right now are in TIPS, Treasury Inflation Protected. Treasury Inflation Protected right. Securities. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And, and um, TIPS, we think, give you a better risk return uh, outlook right now than traditional nominal treasuries, you know, regular treasuries. If, if, look, if you think there's going to be a recession and you think we're going to have negative interest rates, which mm-hmm. some people believe, 
you don't want to own tips. No. That, that just doesn't work. You want to buy, you know, 30-year zero-coupon bonds. That, mm -hmm. that would be the right thing to buy. However, if you don't think that's going to happen, and if you do think that there's a probability that inflation could be higher than people think, the risk return starts shifting towards tips. Mm -hmm. And I think, uh, I, I, I think, you know, tips used to be very popular. Yes, absolutely. I think they're, I, my guess is that I'm going to bet not one of your viewers mm -hmm. has tips in their fixed income portfolio. Mm -hmm. I may be off a little, but you get the point. Right, I do. And, and, um, and I think that's, that's very important, and I think it's worth having in a fixed income portfolio. So we have about, in our multi-asset portfolios right now, roughly about 15%. So that's not exposure. really around the margins. That's... That's, that's a big bet. That's a, yeah. We also have about 6 to 8 to 10%, depending on the portfolio, in gold right. of one form or another. Right. Now, gold serves two purposes for us. Number one is everybody thinks of gold as an inflation hedge. Yes, that's fine. And, and so we put it in that. But I don't think people understand that gold is a very good hedge against what people now call uncertainty. Mm -hmm. It's this unpredictability. And, um, so it's, it's not just a hedge against disaster. It's against uncertainty. Just not knowing right. what's going right. on. And, and so it does well in periods of high uncertainty. That's great. So right. you look at 2019. Gold did very well in 2019, despite the fact there wasn't a lot of inflation. Mm -hmm. How does one explain that? Mm -hmm. Well, if you look at a lot of the indices that try to measure uncertainty, you would find that they were in a completely unprecedented territory, not just high, unprecedented huh. territory. So um, uh, it, it's kind of an interesting, I don't think people understand how extreme the uncertainty actually is right now. Again, cute to point at the president, but think about it on a global scale, all the different things that are going on, whether it's the UK, whether it's India, no matter where you want to go, there's China, a lot of uncertainty. Exactly. Russia, Venezuela, whatever, there's right. Tons of tons. uncertainty mm -hmm. around. And, and I think that argues for a little bit of gold in the portfolio. And, and you basically you know, manage or oversee the ETF portfolios. These are asset allocation strategies. And so one of the, the ones that you use for gold is the Granite Shares Gold Trust. Mm -hmm. You actually uh, analyze the individual ETFs, and you decide Correct. which ones are going to do what you want them to do. Correct. And, of course, there are lots of gold ETFs that are, you know, they're, are much bigger, that are older, whatever it is, but you went with the, the granite. Right. Um, and, and for a reason. What, what was, yeah, what was so the reason? Yeah, so when we did this, I'm not sure right. it's still true today, but when we did it, uh, the expense ratio was, was quite low on the, on, the, um, on the ETF, the gold ETF we were holding, but um, the exposure to gold was identical. Right. And I think people kind of think of ETFs as like they're all the same. They're all the same, yeah. But, but some of them give you exposure to a tenth of, of an ounce of gold. Some is a hundredth of an ounce of gold. It kind of depends on, on that. Mm -hmm. So it's not only important to understand what the expense ratio is, but how much, how much true exposure to gold you're getting relative to the expense ratio. Which is so interesting. So I think that's an important point to know that not all ETFs are the no. same, even though you think they are. And that's what you're doing at RBA, which Absolutely. is really fascinating. Absolutely, and that's, that's true regardless of what type of ETF you're looking at. You might look at a value ETF, a growth ETF, a large cap, a small cap, an emerging market. There's all these other things that are embedded inside ETFs right. that most people are completely unaware of what's going on. Yeah. Another effect uh, that mm -hmm. you're saying is emerging markets will make a comeback after lagging for a decade. I do think that's the case. Now, that's a little bit counter to the notion that globalization is going to contract. Contract, right. That's a little bit counter. But the question is, what happens it, it, to the rest of the world? Could we end up with kind of a, a duopoly uh, in, in, an econ in an economic sense? Mm -hmm. We kind of have the U.S. and the U.S. world and the rest of the world. I, I'm not quite sure. Yeah. But I can tell you relative to other parts of the world, the emerging markets are pretty undervalued. 
pretty underowned mm -hmm. and worth looking at, if mm -hmm. nothing else. Mm -hmm. yeah. So another interesting thing that you did in the report that I referred to in my introduction to you um, was that you compared the emerging market performance with the, the performance of venture capital yeah. funds. Yeah. Now, I was interested <laughs> that you picked venture capital funds, which are, of course, not publicly traded. Right. Um, and, but, but, you know, the, the, tell us about why that disparity is so right. telling, do you so think? So originally we looked at it just simply because we thought they were kind of the extremes of the risk spectrum, mm -hmm. right? If you think about the equity world in the, in the public equity markets, probably as risky as you can get is maybe emerging markets. Right. In the private markets, as risky as you can get is probably venture, venture capital. capital. So we right. kind of said so we have these two extremes. Let's look at how they perform through mm -hmm. time. And uh, I have to admit, even from our point of view, we, we were laughing at what we found, that you've gone through decades through decades where they've switched back and forth. So if you go to um, the 1999-2000, the mm -hmm. kind of where we are right now, but, but a while back, what you would have found was that everybody loved venture capital. This was the tech right. bubble. Sure. Everybody loved venture capital. Um, and um, if you go back, and, no, and everybody hated emerging markets because mm -hmm. you had the Russian crisis and the Asian crisis and all these things. And of course, in the next 10 years, emerging markets absolutely destroyed venture capital right. in terms of returns. So then we get to 2010, roughly, 2009, 2010. Everybody loves emerging markets. Nobody cares about venture capital. Mm -hmm. And of course, in this decade, venture capital has completely destroyed emerging markets. Right. And if you go back even further in time, you find these things just go on and on and on. So what's happened? We're sitting here. Everybody loves venture capital. Yes. I mean, innovation, disruption, everybody's using all these words. And nobody could care about emerging markets. So. Probably not a bad guess over the next 10 years, <laughs> emerging markets and venture are going to switch. What's your emerging markets exposure, for mm -hmm. instance, in your portfolios, and, and how are you doing that exposure? And let's talk about China. China's mm -hmm. a big holding of yours. Why? Right. Okay, so again, we use ETFs to get our emerging right, market right. exposure. Very efficient way to trade in the emerging markets as opposed to trying to trade individual names. Um, our emerging market exposure right now in our equity portfolio, it is about roughly 13 to 15% mm -hmm. of the portfolios in emerging markets. The benchmark is, is roughly about 11, mm -hmm. let's say. Take or leave a little bit there. Uh, our total emerging market exposure right now is China. Mm -hmm. China's only about 3% oh. of the global benchmark. It's about 12, 13, 14% roughly of our, of our portfolios. Huh. Why China? Yes. So if you, if you step back for a second, this is going to make perfect sense. Because of the politics of what's been going on, China has been injecting massive, absolutely massive amounts of monetary and fiscal policy into their economy. Mm -hmm. They've basically been saying, if we can't sell stuff around the world, let's sell more of it in China. Mm -hmm. Right? It's not PhD type stuff, it's just a natural reaction. And they have the flexibility to pull both the lever for monetary policy and the right. lever for fiscal policy. A lot right, of places around the world you can't it. do that. Right. Yes. So they've been doing this for a while. And what you find is that the leading indicators in China, that's an important word, leading, mm -hmm. because mm -hmm. those they will turn before the economy turns. Their leading indicators all through 2019 were showing about the best momentum of any major economy in the world. And that's still true now as we're entering 2020. So right. as a dispassionate investor, right, we could argue, you know, about trade. We could argue about human rights. Not my day job. Mm -hmm. if, you, if, you are, if you look at this dispassionately, I don't know how you can ignore one of the world's largest economies where the leading indicators are showing tremendous momentum mm -hmm. and they're injecting massive monetary and fiscal stimulus into that economy. And, and I know that, you know, at, at any given time, your ETF investments could change mm -hmm. uh, d depending on whether they're doing the job you want them to. But in, in this case, it's the iShares 
MSCI China ETF. So, mm -hmm. right. So that's your entire exposure to emerging markets is, is in China. Is in, right China. Now. is in China now, right now. Now, in fairness, I have to be honest with you, in 2019, China performed very well. People yes. didn't really understand that. It was a bit of an up and down year, but it did perform well. In fairness, Brazil performed actually as well as China did. And we but didn't for really. For the decade, uh, I think oh, the Bovespa was like the, one of the worst, or oh, the yeah, worst absolutely. performing segment. It was no, like no, down 29% no. for, yeah, for the decade. For the it, decade. Was, it was terrible. Disaster. So I'm just saying, 2019, <laughs> it actually did pretty well. I'm just trying to be fair yeah, yeah. out there. Um, but I think, I think if you're, if you're, as you're looking forward and, and you're looking, and if you believe there's a little more inflation, uh, certainly the emerging markets have a history of performing well as inflation begins to pick up, and we'll start looking at them. I think it's a little early yet, but we'll start looking. The end of globalization, uh, you know, one of, again, one of your kind of major pronouncements and strategies, you, you say, this is very clever, tech becomes direct. Yes. <laughs> really? Yeah. It, I mean, what's direct? Well, direct is, is a Yiddish term for, like, junk. And, right, no, uh, I know. So how direct yeah. is tech? Well, I think, here's thing? the thing. I, I think there's been no sector that has benefited more from globalization in the tech sector. Two reasons. Number one, they have they have tremendous supply chains, very very integrated supply chains mm -hmm. all around all the, the world. world. Uh, and number two, it's the sector whose sales and users, you know, they, if you think about their customers, right. are the most globally diverse of any sector in the United States. So they have the highest foreign exposure in sales. They have probably the highest foreign exposure in terms of supply chain. Mm -hmm. They've benefited tremendously from globalization. If right. globalization contracts. That's tough for them. Mm -hmm. Number one, they may not be able to sell their goods to everybody. You've already heard things about there's going to be a U.S. Uh, sphere of technological influence and a Chinese, Chinese sphere of right. technological influence. You know, if you're a tech company, you're saying, well, wait a minute, that, that's going to be a market share that I'm going to lose right. in, in the future. And then you think about what could happen in terms of supply chains and everything else that goes along with that. So I, I think, you know, it's always, it's always interesting to say, oh, wow, this sector has done very well. But there always has to be an economic reason why that's happened. Mm -hmm. And in this case, the reason is they've been the number one sector for taking advantage of that monstrous globalization. You had a very interesting uh, you know, chart that basically showed you compared the, the names of big tech in the last three decades. Yes. And, um, and so the top 10 in market cap. Yeah. And the fact is that, that the, so there were only four names that repeated throughout yeah. those three decades. So your point being... The point being that, you know, I think people forget that technology is a, is a sector where, where uniqueness becomes obsolescence very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. And we all tend to forget that. And we all tend to think that, that, you know, a winner today is going to be a winner tomorrow. And that's less likely to happen in tech than in probably any other sector. So, so what do you replace tech with? It has such a huge weighting in the S&P 500, mm. for instance. Right. So as far as an asset class, what are the asset classes that you think are going to be you know, the, the market leaders right. of that sort of size? I'm not sure it's going to be one particular uh -huh. asset class. It may be um, a little bit of a cocktail of other asset classes. Um, you know, I think, you know, certainly we've talked about tips, we've talked about gold. Right. I think that takes up some of the slack. But in, in, the, in, in, in right, in, in equities, in the equity In, in market, equities, right. it may be, it may be non-U.S. equities, mm -hmm. right? I think, I think we've all become very U.S. centric and mm -hmm. that was the right thing to do over the past it 10 sure years. Right. By a lot. I mean, it wasn't even close. No. 
Um, but I'm not sure that that's going to be the story 10 years hence. Mm -hmm. If you go back to 2009, 2010, there weren't many people in the United States who thought the U.S. would be the dominant equity market mm -hmm. over the subsequent 10 years. Here we are in 2020, and everybody thinks it's the place to invest. Right. Wow, how has sentiment changed towards the United States in a decade? The question is, what will people be talking about a decade from now? I'm not sure it'll be U.S. Uh, preeminence. Um, right. You know, I, uh, in, in 2000, you know, we, I remember writing reports that said if the big tech companies of NASDAQ only came down like 5%, and that market cap rolled into the Russell 2000, the Russell 2000 was going up like 25% or 30%. And that was only with a 5% correction mm -hmm. in the big guys. Well, that's starting to, ha you know, you can start to make these comparisons again. Right. And just say these are not only priced for, for perfection, but they're very widely owned. What happens if somebody decides that it's not the perfect place to be and that market cap rolls someplace else? Right. You know, you can see what starts happening to other assets. So are, are you advising we start to make some changes, get more defensive, or, or do you think that we should be more aggressive than that? Yeah, no, we, we're, we've been more aggressive than that. We right. have right now in our multi-asset portfolio, we have 30% of the portfolio in China, tips, and gold. Wow. That's almost a third of the yeah. portfolio. So, and, but, and you started doing that uh, a year, 2018? Uh, it, it depends. Uh, some, right. of the, some of the China and gold began coming in in late 2000, second half 2018. Right. Uh, the tips was late, you know, probably second half last year in 2019, and now it's built up to it's about 30%. So has it hurt performance? No. 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 It I hasn't. Mean, well, on the equity side, we've been, doing, well. we've been doing very, very well on the equity right. side. The fixed income side, it, it's, we're lagging by a little bit. I don't want to make it sound like we're like mm -hmm. dramatically underperforming. We're lagging by a little bit, largely because we did not take part in that huge bond market rally that you saw in the middle of 2019. Right. Right. When interest rates fell yes. very dramatically, yes. we were very unwilling to take duration risk. In other words, go out and long maturity treasuries. We were very unwilling to do mm -hmm. that because long into the treasury market is very expensive. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it's a good strategy to go through time buying uh, historically overvalued assets. Right. In the beginning of 2019, you sold high-yield high bonds mm -hmm. uh, position, and you invested in short-duration T-bonds. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a, a pretty substantial chunk of the portfolio is in, in short-term treasury still? It still is. It yes. still is. And yeah. why, is, why is that? What are they doing for well, you? Well, if you're, if you're worried about inflation at all, Right. You don't want to be on the long end of the curve. So the way we've kind of uh, hedged that is to, with a combination of tips, which mm -hmm. we've mentioned, and shorter-term treasuries. Right. Like a shorter-term treasuries are not going to have the inflation uh, sensitivity that, say, a 10-year or 30-year treasury mm -hmm. would have. Mm -hmm. So, so I mean, I, again, I'm just trying to, to understand that. But that's, that's assuming that inflation comes back. And and is that a it's it tends to be a non-correlated asset in you know in recessions and is 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 it, yeah. it also well, a certainly I more mean, defensive oh without a doubt I mean the the reason we shifted reason. It, the reason we shifted out of corporates and out of lower quality corporates into treasuries was because profitability in the United States was starting to decelerate right and that's rarely a good sign for lower quality fixed income and it was just basically that now what what happened was. People didn't really care. <laughs> I mean, nothing you can do about that. <laughs> so, a, a slowdown mm -hmm. or a recession. What what are you What do you think the possibilities I are? I think I think in terms of a profits recession, meaning do corporate profits turn negative? Yes. 
I think it's roughly 50-50. I mm-hmm. think the jury's out on that one. I think that's... that's for the next year, for, the, for, for 2020. Okay. I think that's, that's uh, there. For an economic recession, mm-hmm. I would lower it to about a third. Mm-hmm. You know, that's, but I think corporate profits are more important right now, than, and that's what people should be focused on, because corporate profits are going to be the driver of employment. In, we saw corporate profits growth slow in 2019. Already, as we end 2019 into 2020, you're seeing the employment statistics start to weaken. Uh, the employment report that came out at the beginning of January, everybody thought it was a solid report. Nobody noticed that the year-to-year gain in employment was the weakest since the recovery in 2011 and 12. Wow. So there's clearly momentum going out of the employment right. market right now. That's critical for the health of the household sector. One investment for a long-term diversified portfolio. What would you have all of us own some of in a long-term diversified portfolio? Right now, I would, I would give you your choice between gold and tips. I just think they're both very under-owned. Mm-hmm. I, I think there's a very large consensus that inflation is nothing to worry about. It is gone and never coming back. And um, I just think expectations are way too low. Rich Bernstein, always a treat to have you on well, Wealth thank Talk. You. Thanks, Thanks for joining us. At the close of every wealth track, we try to give you one suggestion to help you build and protect your wealth over the long term. This week's action point is start preparing your portfolio for the next 10 years. As Rich Bernstein points out, the market leaders of one decade are frequently the laggards of the next and vice versa. Among the winners of the past decade were U.S. stock markets in general, from large cap to mid cap to small, and big tech especially. Netflix had a 4,000% gain, which put it at the head of the FANG pack. Among the laggards were emerging markets, with some disasters like Brazil's Bovespa, which experienced a 27% decline. Inflation hedges, both gold and U.S. Treasury inflation-projected securities, or TIPS, had cumulative gains of only 39%. And commodities suffered, especially if they were energy-related. West Texas Intermediate Oil fell 23% over the decade. So the leaders of the next 10 years can probably be found in the laggards list of the past decade. Time to start sifting through the candidates for potential winners. Well, next week, we are going to revisit our annual exclusive global outlook with Wall Street's long-reigning king of economists, Ed Hyman, and leading global fund manager, Matthew McLennan. On this week's extra feature, Rich Bernstein sounds the alarm on America's lack of infrastructure investment and its dangerous consequences. For those of you active on social media, please connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and our YouTube channel. Thanks for watching. Have a relaxing weekend and make the week ahead a profitable and a productive one.